All right, folks, welcome back. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, for you, it's been three days. For us, it's been about two seconds. Uh, we are back with episode two of whatever this episode will be called. I think I have a title in mind. Um, and today we are going to go over, uh, you know, we sort of talked about the lead up to the atomic bombings, how nuclear weapons work. Um, last episode, uh, this time we're going to talk about um, the bombing itself, the aftermath, sort of the future of nuclear weapons a little bit, a little bit of Canadian context, uh, obligatory. Uh, so of course, uh, I'm Malcolm, with me is Declan, and of course, welcome back to our lovely guest, Haley. Hello. Um, so let's just jump right into it. I, I've forgotten where we were, even though it's been 30 seconds. Yeah, if you want to just uh name search truman and then i think uh femboy. how'd you put it yeah femboy little punk gender critical um, hair yeah <laughs> yeah 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 put the cat ears on yeah i mean no. yeah he, <laughs> femboy joe biden you said he was beholden to all the interests and he yeah. you know he turfed a, a overwhelmingly popular uh progressive candidate so yeah, femboy Joe Biden. Maybe maybe that'll be the the title of the episode. No, uh, we're not doing that. <laughs> Subtitle then. I'll consider it. All right. Anyway, fine. Can't have any fun. Uh, lest we make this an entire like red scare tier thing about uh, Truman's uh, gender, um, we were setting the stage for him uh, because this is like the major turning point. Um, where Truman becomes vice president, his predecessor, uh, Henry Wallace, had he become president, almost certainly would not have dropped the bombs. He was against uh, against the whole program from the start. Truman, on the other hand, was not even aware of the existence of the Manhattan Project at all. Um, he before this, uh, mind you, he was vice president for like not even ninety days, like not even three months. Eighty-two days as vice president, he meets with FDR twice. He was completely kept in the dark about issues of foreign policy, completely unaware of the existence of the Manhattan Project until the day he became president on April 12th. Um, and some evidence points to Truman being kind of unaware about either the use of the bomb or was really confused about its purpose or capability. So there's kind of a theory that we don't have time to explore, but uh, warrants uh, consideration that this move was kind of slipped under the rug by uh, the Hawks and uh, the hardliners, anti-communist hardliners um, in his cabinet. But anyways, um, and like I mentioned last episode, he was extremely violently racist towards every minority in the book. There wasn't any that were spared uh, his contempt. Um, but Truman assumes office um, and has an existential crisis. Um, and then Potsdam happens. Uh, the war is winding down at this point. Um, and Truman had expressed certainty, but once FDR dies, right, and FDR um, kind of insisted that he treat the Soviets with respect and and uh, try to try to assuage them, he is quickly influenced by sort of the hawks that FDR kept at bay while he was alive, and it turns into something really, really deadly. So Potsdam is kind of the final conference. Um, Churchill 
uh, I mentioned Operation Unthinkable last episode, Churchill was confident that if he sprung that plan, um, which was actually shot down by Truman, that that would secure him his reelection, right? So it wasn't as much as he did love to collaborate with Nazis and uh, kill communists, he was also kind of doing this as a political play to secure his reelection because Churchill was not quite as popular as a history would have you think. At you this mean time. to tell me that a British prime minister was going to start a war for their own popularity? Yeah, why not? I mean, no, I mean, we kind of have a, a bit of a running bit, at least that Malcolm loves to do, where they uh, will defend the Falklands War. <laughs> the herring of the North was good. <laughs> like, but I, I mean, is that the one that Thatcher did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah, was yeah. Falkland Islands. The, the that was just like that was just Argentina. a flex. No, it was. It was just a flex. I mean, that's that everyone always called that one the Empire Strikes Back or whatever. Um, but I, I just want to mention Atlee for a second. I don't think we've done an episode about him, but we will, because he's probably one of the coolest people of the, the 21st century, at least as far as Western politicians go. He was a socialist, an anti-imperialist. Now, he was the one who decided that Britain was not going to be an empire anymore. Um, he invented universal health care for the West. Uh, I mean, basically every robust social program in Britain is a result of, of Sir Clement Atlee. Um, one of two good prime ministers they've had uh, in a long time. Uh, the other being Harold Wilson, who was so bad that the M MI5 tried to take him out in a coup once. Um, Mr. Wilson. Yes, yes. Um, so anyway, so Atlee is like a soldier from World War One. He's kind of like a balding guy, uh, very unassuming, uh, middle-class person. And he is much more interested in detente with the Soviet Union. Uh, than Churchill was, than Truman was, and eventually Churchill has to rig an election to get him out of office um, in, like, after Churchill comes back, and by coming back while well, he is Joe Biden and, you know, demented and his health is failing, he actually kind of destroys the Conservative Party for a while. Anyways, that doesn't really matter, it's just, it's important to know that at this conference, Truman was the only violent anti-communist. Yeah, there were like two changes of power that happened like right before Potsdam and then literally during, uh, which is really interesting. That, of course, causes a huge shift in the end game of the war. But I'm glad you guys touched on Atlee because um, he's a really interesting guy that I don't know a ton about. Um, but he ultimately is kind of, it's really between Stalin and Truman, was afraid of Stalin. He's very, he's deeply intimidated by him, right? Because he knew that he was dumb. He knew that he could be played like a fiddle. And he knew that Stalin was conniving, he was uh, sharp, he was quick-witted, um, and he could easily be outplayed by him. And so Truman needed a trump card, and he did that by delaying Potsdam by a week so that something called the Trinity Test could happen on July 16th, 1945, which was the first successful test of the atomic bomb at Alamogordo, New Mexico. So Truman has that in his back pocket when he is trying to essentially bully the Soviets out of their rightful or agreed upon spoils um, for the war that were established at Yalta, at Tehran, like in every other conference uh, proceeding. Um, so Stalin insisted again, uh, he first brought this up at Yalta, that a portion of Central Eastern Europe under Soviet uh, provision was necessary as a bulwark for self-defense. And history was really on his side there because the USSR had been invaded 
three times in the last 20 years at this point, right? You have World War One, then you have the Civil War in which the US and the UK entered on the side of the whites to try to put down uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. And then you have, of course, Barbarossa. Um, this is also something um, I remember, Malcolm, you brought up that we can't blame just like the allies or just FDR and Churchill for kind of like making Stalin feel embattled and bitter. And you're absolutely right about that, because just like in America, the public and a lot of politicians had like Pearl Harbor syndrome. Stalin was deeply, deeply afflicted by like something I guess we'd call Barbarossa syndrome. It, I mean, it led to him like purging the military. It led to just this deep seated paranoia and constant like fear of betrayal. Um, and in a lot of ways that was justified, but it exacerbated like the kind of paranoia that was kind of already simmering underneath the surface with him. But anyways, Truman comes into the conference guns blazing. He's at this point like fully indoctrinated by his anti-communist advisors and smug with the knowledge of the Trinity test. Um, so at Potsdam, they lay out the uh, plan for Japan's unconditional surrender. Um, they also established the arbitrary division of Korea at a 30 at the 38th parallel um, to be revisited. This was only supposed to be a temporary measure and here 80 years later. But anyways, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, divided Korea at the 38th parallel, um, and then so the reunification was supposed to be facilitated primarily by the United States, but instead we just uh, bombed the shit out of them. Um, so while still at the conference, Truman gave Japan an ultimatum to surrender um, in the name of the United States, Great Britain, and China, or meet prompt and utter destruction. So this is like the first formal threat, um, vague, but still. Um, and Prime Minister Suzuki did not immediately respond. Uh, the War Council at this point, um, and this is why the firebombings are significant, um, by, by suggesting that the atomic bombings were like unique in some way, that's not to discredit or like discount the utter havoc that the firebombings were wreaking. And they actually really factor in to this, uh, the argument that the bombs were unnecessary because the, the Imperial War Council was at that at this point, like indifferent to more bombings. Oh, you've got a secret bomb. Like what could be worse than incinerating like 90% of our cities and industrial centers? Like they were just completely indifferent at that point. Um, it's also important to note, I just like to interject that Japan tried twice to build their nuclear weapon. It didn't work, but they knew about the theoretical possibility. And they realized what happened was a nuclear explosion within like a few hours of it happening. And so the possibility, they didn't think America was ready to drop a nuclear bomb, but they knew that they were developing one. And like the possibility that they would drop one was not like it was expected. So I just yeah. wanted to add that in there. Yep. Um, so then Truman speaks to Stalin of a powerful new weapon uh, right after Stalin like lays out uh, his uh, desires for spoils and spheres of influence. Um, and I mentioned that Truman was not aware of the existence of the bomb until he became president. Uh, Stalin had been aware of the Manhattan Project and the British bomb project, which preceded it uh, by almost for almost five years. He knew about down or excuse me, unthinkable. He knew about the Manhattan Project. He knew about all of it. The other allies were actively trading nuclear secrets, like even France and shit, like fucking Australia, like everybody 
was privy to this, and I mean, Stalin was too, but Stalin wasn't allowed into the circle. And Stalin really envisioned for like a post-war peace that was centered around uh, sharing the atomic secrets and kind of like how Eisenhower did like the whole Atoms for Peace initiative. That's kind of what Stalin had in mind, like mutual peacekeeping uh, around like shared uh, proliferation of the bombs. But anyways. Um, it just seems like, you know, the it was supposed to be the good kind of mutually assured destruction. I mean, it seems like that was the original intention of the Manhattan Project, right? It was that just make sure that we have it so that the Germans don't feel like they're going to use it. And then this agreement to between the Soviets and the Americans to just kind of have it there and not in an aggressive way, but just as a sort of, we know that we both have this technology and not to use it because right. of that. Not as like, we're going to use the fact that they have that nuke as a way to keep the war cold, sort of a positive, like, we don't need to be hostile to each other because we both know what the other is capable of. Yeah, he was really thinking that this the Grand Alliance would continue and that it would evolve into this sort of like global peacekeeping force instead of what actually happened, which was like NATO versus the Warsaw Pact, that sort of thing. He earnestly believed that the USSR could be incorporated into this kind of like allied peacekeeping force. Um, so let me, excuse me, I lost my place here. Dallas. Yeah. Oh, okay. Man. And so after uh, Truman clues in Stalin about the existence of the bomb and threatens Japan with it uh, for the first time formally, um, Truman is informed during this conference uh, of Japan's willingness, formal willingness to surrender by none other than Alan Dulles, who some of you might know as the former head of the CIA and the guy who killed JFK and then covered it up. Um, not to be confused with John Foster Dulles, who I think was dead or dying at this point. I think he died in the early 50s. Um, he says in, or Dulles says in his book, The Art of Surrender, um, on July 20th, 1945, under instructions from Washington, I went to the Potsdam Conference and reported there to Secretary Stimson, uh, Secretary of War, on what I had learned from Tokyo. They desired to surrender if they could retain the emperor and the constitution as a basis for maintaining discipline and order in Japan after the devastating news of surrender became known to the Japanese people. Um, and then both Truman and Burns, uh, his advisor, are documented in their diaries as explicitly understanding this as a, as a petition for peace, as an attempt at surrender. And that's very, very important. And this is far from the first time that this has been alluded to or that Truman receives intel or that uh, anybody receives intel. But this is where we have the first concrete acknowledgement that yes, Japan wants to surrender. The war is kind of winding down. There's a way out of this. Um, but this is also the point where Truman starts to consider the bomb for his own selfish purposes or perhaps like larger political um, purposes. So I think we're gonna get into the bombing in a second. So would you like me to just sort of explain how the two of them worked? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, because I think that there's a sort of another angle that can be taken here, which is this idea of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, not just as grandstanding, not just as, you know, racism, but as an experiment, um, which is notable by the fact that they did drop two different bombs on two different cities. So the two bombs, as I'm sure many of you have heard, um, 
the first one, the one dropped on Hiroshima, was called Little Boy. The second one, the one dropped on Nagasaki, was called Fat Man. They had different designs. So Little Boy, you know, as of last episode, you've heard, you know, you need a critical mass, a certain amount of a fissile material to detonate. And so obviously you cannot put that mass together in the bomb. Otherwise it'll blow up while you're constructing it, right? So a nuclear bomb works by pushing uh, two uh, amounts of fissile material that are not of critical mass together until they are of, of it. So the little boy was a very simple device. It fired a quote bullet of uranium into another mass of uranium. Um, and in a fraction of a millisecond, all this uranium would tear itself apart. Uh, its bonds would break and it would explode with the force of several tons, uh, metric or imperial of TNT. Um, as well as the brutal explosion, uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, various subatomic particles will be thrown out, which uh, messes with the particles in the human body and can linger around for a long time. When we talk about what it was actually like, I'm going to talk about the effects of acute radiation syndrome. It's just about the least pleasant way to die. Um, Fat Man, the other one they dropped on Nagasaki, was the first device to use plutonium. Um, so while plutonium is more suitable, for a reaction, uh, plutonium-239, which is the isotope they used, is not found naturally and had to be created in a lab. Um, so Fat Man was known as an implosion bomb. So instead of firing two pieces of uranium together, they used uh, sort of an explosive screen to compress a plutonium core uh, into critical mass. It was a quote, more effective uh, design than Little, Bo Little Boy. It, it created a larger explosion, but it was more complex. So the trendy test was actually a Fat Man design but Little Boy was completely unique and it was dropped first because it was simpler uh, and less likely to fail. So since those two bombs, there's been a lot of development in the field of atomic weapons, uh, nuclear weapons specifically. Um, so the next development was what is called a fusion boosted fission weapon. So you'll remember I mentioned nuclear fusion, what happens in the sun, uh, elements instead of breaking apart, join together to become you know, heavier, more massive. Element. So the key to a miniaturization of a nuclear bomb, you know, to make it smaller so you can and lighter so you can put it on a missile, uh, or put more of them on a plane, uh, or put more material in one bomb, is to introduce more neutrons to speed up the reactions. And so by adding uh, two isotopes of hydrogen called deuterium and tritium, uh, you can do so, uh, because as the bomb detonates, these isotopes create a secondary fusion reaction, which creates the necessary neutrons. Um, and then the next stage after that, the one that most nuclear weapons are nowadays, is what is known as a thermonuclear weapon or a hydrogen bomb. So boosting this even further without an incredible expense uh, was to create a sort of a second stage, a two-part bomb, where the fission uh, explosion would set off a fusion reaction. So these are called thermonuclear weapons, as I mentioned. Um, and the largest thermonuclear weapon ever detonated, which is the Soviet Tsar bomb, uh, created an explosion 3,500 times the size of Little Boy. Uh, it sunk an island into the sea when they tested it. They only tested it once, and it actually almost destroyed the plane that dropped it, even though the plane was flying several kilometers uh, in the air. And in fact, they had to, when they first designed the Zarbon, they had to cut it in half, its size in half, because if they had dropped the one they initially designed, it would have cracked the earth in half, um, or it would have opened up the crust. Uh, so nowadays, most development... Uh, is done by way of uh, delivery systems and defense systems. So miniaturization has created the possibility for delivery by missiles rather than planes, as I mentioned. So unless you're North Korea or Iran, to this day, nuclear development tends to be about creating missiles that can go really fast and avoid detection or being intercepted. Russia is really good at this. Uh, otherwise, you want defense systems. 
something that can stop a nuclear missile from landing in your country, right? So the 2017 North Korean missile crisis brought to light that if somebody launched an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile at the United States, there wouldn't be much that they could actually do about it, uh, which is a terrifying prospect, right? So defense systems have varied. Uh, currently, they tend to be interceptors, smaller missiles that track and intercept uh, nuclear missiles before they can land. Ronald Reagan had this great idea of what was called, great sarcastically, what was called Star Wars, uh, putting lasers in orbit to okay. shoot down missiles. Um, if you look, if you remember like that very famous video of a very young Bernie Sanders standing up in Congress and condemning the U.S. military budget, where he has that big graph showing that the U.S. military budget 10 times the size of everyone else, that is specifically what he's railing against. Um, early, really early designs before interceptors was to get uh, pilots in fighter jets to go into suicidal dives to try and come close to matching the ICBM speed uh, and desperately try and shoot it down or damage its electronics so it couldn't detonate. But the most terrifying defense system that has ever been um, uh, devised is the idea of the preemptive strike. Um, so many nuclear nations, specifically America and Russia, have committed to this idea of a preemptive strike. China and Britain have a no first strike doctrine, which means that they will never be the first one to fire nuclear weapons. But America and Russia have this idea that if you believe that there's a good chance that the other person is gonna launch nuclear weapons at you, you launch first and you try and take out their country before they can do you. And this led to the create, do you in rather. This led to the creation of what is known as a dead man switch computer, uh, which has the ability to automatically destroy the world if it seems like their country has been wiped away. This has almost gone wrong several times. Um, you know, when uh, satellite launches or even reflections on clouds have been taken from nuclear missile launches, computers have almost responded in Russia and America with all out nuclear strikes, either by America on the Soviet Union or by the Soviet Union on America. Uh, probably the scariest close call we've ever had was when the Norwegians launched a small test rocket in the 1990s. Uh, it's the closest we've actually ever come because uh, the Russian systems mistook it for a missile launch uh, and Russian President Boris Yeltsin opened up his nuclear football. He put the key in, he turned it, and in probably the only sober moment in his life, uh, he decided not to launch because why would they only launch one, but if he had launched, then obviously America would have been well within their rights to retaliate, uh, and they would have, and we wouldn't have even known that the world ended. It just would have. Right. Um, and the next stage, the hypothetical final stage of a nuclear weapon is a pure fusion weapon, which is a weapon that is, yeah, just theoretical at this point, uh, but it's a weapon that doesn't need a fission reaction to start a fusion one. Uh, it's cheaper, it's lighter, there's no radiation, uh, and it creates a bigger explosion. So imagine a tiny version of the sun being dropped on top of an enemy city. So that's nuclear technology for you. I actually disagree with you, Malcolm, about uh, the most dangerous point or the, or the closest we came to nuclear well, so, war, but that's a yeah, story the, for another the, time. The Cuban Missile Crisis uh, submarine. Vasily Arkhipov, yeah. Yeah, that could be that. It's just like with that, I feel like even if he did launch that torpedo, uh, there could have been a chance to dial it back, whereas Yeltsin literally had his finger on the button. Right. But either way, it doesn't really matter. And it's not exactly comforting that there's like so many to pick from. Like there yeah. have been literally dozens of nuclear near misses ranging from like mm -hmm. everything to like an actual standoff like the Cuban Missile Crisis to comms blackouts to computers malfunctioning. Like our, our missile silos for the Minutemans like 
run on floppy disks still. Like it is actually scarily easy to get into one of those hack it or for it to break down, which is part of why we're modernizing and everyone's kind of modernizing in the wake of this like second cold war. But it's not exactly comforting that the famous quote about the Cuban Missile Crisis is that it was averted by the goodwill of men. And I don't know about you, but I don't feel comfortable with the sake of with the fate of humanity being wrapped up in somebody's mood or somebody's feeling like they want to be diplomatic that day um, because we're talking anything from a partial nuclear winner and a limited exchange between, say, India and Pakistan to something much, uh, much worse. Um, but I appreciate you going over the technology behind the bombs because that's not super my forte. I failed chemistry, um, but it's it really. I drives... also failed chemistry. Don't worry. That's why I sw I was gonna be an aerospace engineer, and then I failed chemistry, so I switched to history. Oh, I hate it when that happens. Yeah. Well, it's fine. I love history, and that's <laughs> why I like to specialize on like technological history. But anyways, it doesn't matter. Thank you for explaining some of the technology behind that and kind of introducing the point of the bombs as experiments because that's what they were. Um, but let's get into some of the surrender efforts, uh, kind of the J J Japan uh, USSR correspondence that was happening behind the scenes before we get uh, to the bombings themselves. Um, so I touched on Saipan in July 44. Um, that is when they began to abandon Ketsugo and sue for peace in earnest. Um, like I said, B-29s were now in range of the mainland with this, with that defeat. Um, and their infrastructure and their military were at that point far too weak to fight a war on one front, let alone two. Um, and the Japanese foreign minister said on July 12th, 1945, that unconditional surrender is the only obstacle to peace. Um, the Allies intercepted this telegram, and Truman himself referred to it as telegram from the Jap Emperor asking for peace. Um, on April 11th, 1945, a little before this, the Joint Chiefs uh, said that if at, if at any time the USSR should enter the war against Japan, all Japanese will realize that absolute defeat is inevitable. So they are acknowledging that there is a way to end the war besides uh, the bombs, which are not being seriously weighed as an option at this point. Um, Truman wrote in his diary, Stalin will enter the war by August 15th. Japs finished when that occurs. Uh, he later wrote to his wife, the Russians are coming in. We'll end the war a year sooner now. Think of all the boys that won't be killed. Um, in May 1945, uh, former President Hoover wrote to Truman and urged him to accept Japan's revised surrender terms, right? Their only consolation was that they wanted to maintain the emperor which in an ironic twist of fate, we rejected Japan and then kept the emperor anyways. Um, but I digress. Um, before the, but this is why the Soviet invasion was really significant. Um, before the invasion of Manchuria, uh, the uh, Operation August Storm, the Japanese foreign minister had hoped that the Soviets could negotiate better surrender terms with the US. Uh, the loss of Stalin as a bargaining Chip left Japan with no other option but to pursue surrender. Um, and they're quoted as saying that the destruction of Hiroshima had done nothing to reduce the preparedness of the troops dug in on the beaches of Japan's home islands. They were still dug in, they still had ammunition, and their military strength had not been diminished in any important way. Bombing Hiroshima did not foreclose either of Japan's strategic options. The impact of the Soviet declaration of war and invasion of Manchuria was quite different. Um, and as we know, the Red Army absolutely mopped 
the Japanese army in Manchuria and was within two weeks. Uh, they in so the invasion Operation August Storm begins at midnight on three months from Victory Day, which is August 9th, uh, 1945. Um, and they were already on track to invade Hokkaido uh, two weeks after that. Um, so in a meeting with of the Supreme Council in June 1945, they said the Japanese War Council said that Soviet entry into the war would determine the fate of the empire. Army Deputy Chief of Staff Kawakabe said in that same meeting, the absolute maintenance of peace in our relations with the Soviet Union is imperative for the continuation of the war. Um, and then we're going to get into more of the testimonials. Um, there's literally hundreds, um, but the strategic bombing survey that was commissioned by the US uh, afterwards concluded that Japan would have surrendered even if the atomic bombs had not been dropped, even if Russia had not entered the war, and even if no invasion had been planned or contemplated. Um, and the nuclear option, like I mentioned, was actually seldom considered until uh, Soviet entry into the Eastern Front was imminent. Um, before that, they had just been considering their end games of surrender, island hopping, um, continued bombing, or uh, their land invasion um, downfall um, in August. Um, and we're, we're going to get to Curtis LeMay in a second, but on September 20th, 1945, uh, my birthday, <laughs> which this sucks to hear, but uh, the famous hawk who commanded uh, the 21st Bomber Command, Major General Curtis LeMay, Curtis Mad Dog LeMay, uh, publicly said flatly at a press conference that the atomic bomb had nothing to do with the end of the war. He said, quote, the war would have been over in two weeks without the use of the atomic bomb or Russian entry into the war. Again, this is a guy who is absolutely new crazy, just has a complete hard on for incinerating people, not a moral person, like this wasn't out of any goodwill, and even he was like, yep, we didn't need to do it. I want to add that even if all these people are wrong, and even if it did take the Soviet entry into the war, even if it took the nukes, the, the fact that it was the conception among these people that it wouldn't have taken the nukes and they used them anyways is a real crime, even if, and it's not the case, even if the nukes are what actually ended the war. Yeah, yeah, they, they were like fully... To, it's, it's a moral thing. They were prepared thing. to burn hundreds of thousands of civilians just to yeah like you said even if they were going to you know even if it wasn't assured and they they actually needed to the willingness to japan has said that they're willing to surrender to you you know all they want is to keep their emperor which you give them anyway all they wanted was to keep the emperor and instead these people who then go on to design the empire that we're now all living under <laughs> decide no we would much rather directly drop this incredibly destructive device literally in one case on top of a hospital yep um there's that's literally the people who didn't lose a wink of sleep over uh bombing laos bombing cambodia all the shit we did in vietnam killing millions of innocent people um were vehemently opposed to the atomic bombings. And that's what the atomic bombings did. They normalized this scope and scale of violence. And if, when we got away with it, and we came away as the victors in World War II and kind of cheated the Soviets out of the negotiating table, uh, we didn't have to consider the morality of anything. We didn't have to act like we were the good guys. We were the good guys um, because of you know the, the story we were able to spin for people. Yeah, um, like it was just completely sublimated almost right away that 
this is the level of force that wars are fought with now. And if we're using less than that, that's us showing restraint. Yeah, it fundamentally changed the nature of warfare, period. Um, when you have this threat looming over you, you have to do proxy wars, you have to do espionage, you have to, like, the, the occurrence of, like, like standoffs like military conflicts has like gone down significantly but that's not to say that like the violence has subsided in any way or that the loss of life is any left because it's not we just have the added bonus that uh any you know mishap with these weapons could kill us all 10 percent of the north korean civilian population was killed in the korean war not a single building left over four stories yep standing we, left standing we dropped more bombs on the dprk than in all of the pacific theater combined in world war ii it's like a horrifying thought, and I, I believe, I could be wrong with this, I believe even Curtis LeMay himself said, we have done a terrible thing here in yeah. North Korea, standing in like the smoking ruins of Pyongyang. And so uh, to just establish this precedent, it's almost like a court of law, right? Like to establish this precedent, um, I think we mentioned this at the beginning of the last episode, it's just one of the most evil things, even inadvertently, that has ever been done. Yeah, and I sympathize with people who may not be super into history, who are just fucking exhausted with seeing debates about Stalin and about Kronstadt and all this shit happening on the timeline every single day. But this, I wanna drive home how important the atomic bombings were because it really is like the creation myth of like the US regime that we know today that has like irrevocably like changed the course of history um, and a lot of the things that we argue about constantly are wrapped up in this uh, obscuring of World War II history that Stalin and Barbarossa and uh, the Non-Aggression Pact and all these different things. Um, so this is something that is especially important to get right and get at the heart of um, for any leftist, but really any moral person um, because it enables and continues to enable everything we see playing out today sure so before we get into the bombings themselves uh i'd just like to add a little bit because you know whatever 60 percent of our listeners are canadian although i imagine there'll be more americans listening to this episode um uh a little i'll throw them a little bone uh because you know it's a big canadian habit to look at american war movies about world war ii you know saving private ryan and be like well we actually we landed on a beach ourselves and we did a better job than them juno beach juno beach was yeah. a tougher beach than than whatever omaha but we got further than them by the end of the day whatever right and canada was very involved in uh in the manhattan project as well i mean we had scientists that went to los alamos we had a guy that got irradiated in an incident and his skin fell off and he died more on acute radiation syndrome later um but also Canada has very extensive uranium deposits and actually supplied the uranium that was used in Little Boy, uh, the Hiroshima bomb, right? The Montreal Laboratory was a Canadian nuclear lab that ab absorbed most of the scientists from the British nuclear program. Remember, we were still part of the British Empire back then. Uh, I mean, we still were until still the 1980s. Uh. <laughs> eh. We're Debatable. independent I mean, now, I'm just damn fucking it. with you. Yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, legally, no... You could say that the queen, you know, whatever, doesn't matter, right? Um, but, you know, until the 1980s, our constitution was still guaranteed by Britain. Um, we were still part of the British Empire. And so when London was starting to get the shit bombed out of it, we took all their nuclear scientists. And because it was in Quebec, 
when France fell, we took all their nuclear scientists and a good supply of heavy water. Um, and we combined our efforts. And so when America and Britain decided to combine their efforts, um, Canada became essentially the liaison between the British and French nuclear programs and the Manhattan Project. We were vital without Canada. And this is not something to be proud of. Without Canada, the nuclear bomb would not have been ready. So Japan would be gone beforehand, right? Well, that was really nice of them. And yeah, yeah and, and the other thing Let's... is, it's this weird Canadian nationalist thing to get mad that we didn't get nukes in the 50s. I mean, if you've read anything about like the Avro Arrow interceptor that we agreed to build in exchange for nukes, I mean, we there are a contingent of people who get mad that we weren't given American nuclear warheads because we had designed like the missile defense system that they were going to use. And, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting to see how the U.S., in the wake of, you know, showing off what the atom bomb was capable of, was able to kind of hold it over its little brother's head, it feels like, you know, and be like, uh, 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 you know, you don't get this. You, you have to be, you have to, you know, be good. And then maybe we'll give you, we'll let you in, in our uh, air defense systems. And, you know, it obviously dropping the bomb um, showed the powers that America was trying to fight, that that was how war was going to have to be fought. But it also showed that if you weren't okay with that level of violence, you weren't going to enjoy any of the protections that right. America would be would be developing alongside its nuclear program as a deterrent. That's a I actually want to talk about way. this. I want to talk about this because it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, for, uh, first of all, I want to add that Canada is actually a her, Declan, but it doesn't matter. Oh, my bad. It's <laughs> just a crumb of nuclear umbrella. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's literally it, right? So nuclear nussy. Who needs yeah, nussy? I'm sorry. Oh my so god. Sorry. Oh my god. Again. <laughs> oh my god, me. Um, you know, Canada, Australia. Sorry, I'm gonna show you. No, no, out. no, that 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 was funny. That it was took funny. like two hours for the online poisoning to seep in. So. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, we are under the American nuclear umbrella, all of their NORAD defenses, um, are in Canada. Um, and I mean, there's a Canadian general's always in charge of NORAD. Um, but uh, it's also, yeah, important to say, like, you know, Canada Canadians get really mad about the. Avro era, we built the best you know fighter jet ever made, and then the Americans made us give it up because yeah, like, oh, we sunk it into Lake Ontario. I'm yeah. so patriotic right now. We, we... But specifically, uh, we did station American nuclear weapons here until you know the most famous Canadian nationalist figure of all time, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, had a great line, which was this idea of incineration without representation. Um, Yo, and which is so great to turn on the Americans. Um, he's probably our best prime minister but anyways he um he made them take them back uh and we're still under the northern umbrella we'd still be a target but it's this idea that like we're not going to take part uh today the prime lab in canada which is called chalk rivers in ottawa luckily only works on reactor technology and medical applications and canada's not involved in the creation of any nuclear weapons although yeah we did host them for a few minutes but more on declan's point about canada maybe getting nuclear weapons in the 50s today along with actually funnily enough japan Canada is considered a perfunctory nuclear state in that we have the infrastructure, the material, the engineers, and the knowledge necessary to have nuclear weapons. It's simply a matter of building them, but we don't, and we never have, which is a good thing. I also want to add that, you know, we mentioned the horrific anti-Japanese racism in America. It was the exact same here, right? Uh, America had internment camps. 
we also had internment camps. We sent everyone, Japanese immigrants, people of Japanese descent into uh, essentially, I don't, they weren't prisons, they were walled villages. They were essentially like collective farms um, for years while the war was ongoing. We've luckily compensated them, but it's, it's a great crime. And there's a long history in Canada um, of anti-Asian racism. In fact, the very foundations of our country are not just built on a mountain of indigenous corpses. They're also built on a mountain of Chinese corpses because we uh, imported a bunch of cheap Chinese labor to build the railroad that would connect all of our very disparate colonies together into Canada. Um, and then we and got really it, mad when they are when they wanted to have their families with them and started charging them yep. like fifty dollars in eighteen sixty money around fifty dollars Chinese person to enter yeah. the country and we would make them you know use TNT drilling without any protection. So um, like it's it's just it's important to remember and you know I know you know Declan you will know this and Haley I mentioned this to you and listeners will know that I'm you know kind of patriotic or whatever. Um, but it's important to remember that, like, just because you like your country and you want to do best by it does not mean that you have to ignore its terrible, terrible, very evil history. Right. Uh, like being patriotic in a sense, like pro even the founding fathers would probably agree, unless you brought up slavery, that uh, holding your country accountable is, is a patriotic act. Um, and I wanted to drive home that, um, oh, first of all, I had a question, Malcolm, you mentioned that the internment camps were uh, in the Western territories in Canada. Do you think that had, oh, I was going to ask if um, Canada took any indigenous people in, in the internment camps, or if uh, Alaska, like, you know how Japan was trying to like invade um, the mainland Hawaii, Alaska, we um, had our had own. anything to do with it. I mean, yeah, we had so, our own systems when it came to interning and imprisoning indigenous yeah. people. It, right. it was, indigenous yeah. people. They weren't directly we have, related, I don't think. So, okay. According to the Indian Act, which is sort of a, I apologize for the language, it's the legal term. I should have said that beforehand, but it's called the Indian Act. It's been updated uh, a few times in Canada, but the first iteration, it established a reserve system similar to what's in America, although much more extensive, much more land in Canada, luckily is owned by indigenous people. But specifically, you had a choice as an indigenous person. You could either live on the reserve uh, and get certain benefits. Uh, I think it still applies in some ways today. Uh, well, not quite. You, so you live in the reserve, you get some benefits. You know, you get certain hunting and fishing rights. Uh, you get lower taxes, et cetera. Or you could leave the reserve, at which point you give up your, again, quote, Indian status. So you give up the, quote, benefits, the benefits that come with it. Um, and you can't go back to the reserve and you have to, you're forced to integrate as a quote, normal Canadian. Um, so Fuck that. you give up your fishing license too. Yeah. I know. Over my dead body. So nowadays it's Sorry. not the case anymore. Nowadays it's not, but no, I agree. Fishing's great. Right. Um, nowadays it's not the case anymore, but that's sort of the way it, it was. Um, Canada, a lot of indigenous people fought very bravely received the Victoria cross. It's kind of like the Medal of Honor for uh, Commonwealth countries. Um, and uh, were treated like shit when they got home. Uh, but uh, we have a long history of internment camps. In World War One, we put Germans in internment camps. And obviously, like, it's, it's just, it, I imagine that other countries did similar things. But, but um, yeah, so we had, and it was mostly in the Western 
provinces because that's where more Japanese people were. I don't, there were no internment camps, uh, for example, in Ontario and Quebec. Um, but I'm also not sure, I, I couldn't tell you, I, I should, probably should have looked it up if Japanese people uh, here were sent out there. But in any case, so we did that yeah. in America. Thank you. Um, that was, um, I keep losing my train of thought. Uh, oh, for, before I forget, I wanted to say, if you're interested in learning more about like the modern kind of like geopolitical um, like machinations of like nuclear stuff. Um, and like uh, Malcolm mentioned a lot about the technology, if you wanna learn about how like the nuclear triad and things like that work, uh, like what the current state of like nuclear diplomacy is, um, how that kind of functions in practice. I did an episode a while back with a podcast called Radio Free Labor. Sorry if that's like um, haram to like bring up another podcast oh, on no, a podcast, okay. but that's no, a they're good... probably cooler than us anyway. Yeah. So if that piqued your interest, um, because Declan, you brought up a great point about how like Canada, you know, kind of had an incentive to contribute to the bomb program so that they in turn would be protected by all this. And that's kind of how the nuclear umbrellas of like the former Warsaw Pact and now um, like NATO and everything was formed. Um, so good research if you want to learn more about that. Um, but yeah, where should we go next? Should Got a couple we do more the bombing itself? Yeah, let's do, um, well, let me just touch on the Cold War. Right, okay. Portion of the kind of condemnations real quick or, or the, the lead up. Um, and then we'll get to the real, the real fucking sad stuff. But so Stimson, I mentioned before how um, all the allies except for the Soviet Union were uh, sharing bomb secrets. Stimson, who was, you know, no dove, no, no communist sympathizer, said to Truman that the only way to make a man trustworthy is to trust him. Um, and he warned Truman of an arms race if uh, the intel wasn't shared for peacekeeping purposes. So there were people like even in like the moderate kind of right wing that were warning Truman against this, uh, like in his inner circle, because he didn't have to listen to the Manhattan Project scientists. He laughed at them. He didn't really have to listen to the military either. Um, he didn't, he respected them, maybe a modicum uh, more. But um, so then we have, I mentioned Operation Unthinkable, just Churchill's formal drafted plans uh, to go to war with the USSR that may have happened had um, Attlee uh, not been elected or had Truman not uh, opposed Plan. That's really what got him to uh, pocket it. Um, but he planned it for the beginning of July, right before Potsdam, right before the election, like I said. Um, Churchill also considered, and he advocated for using nukes on Moscow, Stalingrad, where like a million allied, not like allied, tro allied troops and civilians, like the biggest, probably the biggest battle of the war in Europe and the turning point of the war in Europe, nuke it, um, and Kiev. Um, Stalin was, of course, aware of all of this. Um, eventually, Operation Unthinkable was determined to be unthinkable um, and was reformed into a defense plan. Defense fascism plan. Um, okay. So Truman said at the beginning of the war uh, that if we, he was hesitant on a, even having the US joining, he said that if we see that Germany is winning, we ought to help Russia. And if Russia is winning, we ought to help Germany and that way let them kill as many as possible. So he was totally indifferent. He didn't care if it was Nazis dying or communists dying. He didn't care. Right. Well, that's kind of like it seems to be a misconception that this was like a war of ideology and not just Hitler being really, really annoying to both the UK and the US. Yeah. 
Um, and it's it's some it's funny that I think Malcolm mentioned that we embargoed Japan, but we for oil, but we were happy to uh, give oil to Germany and the Soviets. I think actually the only reason the Koch family survived the Great Depression is because they were uh, building oil derricks for Stalin and Hitler. Um, so that's interesting. I was about to say base. No, no I can't. No, it's. <laughs> I'm trying not to use that word, <laughs> but this is why I like hate leftists who think that like the bombs were cool because they like hecking freaking own the, the fascists or whatever, like in doing so, like they fucked the Soviets out of like, well, first of all, like America, like outright refused, everybody refused the proposed anti-fascist alliance that was could have perhaps prevented the war. And then after the war, the bombs dropping kind of enabled this like soft fascism or now, you know, like outright fascism doesn't matter that you see playing out through the 20th century. So it's not really like anything morally pure or even like responsible to claim that that was like a, a defeat of fascism in any way. And even like in a long, long form way, I imagine the type of leftists that justify the bomb are the same type of leftists that freak out about China. And um, in a very, very long form, the United States committing itself to an aggressive Cold War against the Soviet Union put the nails in its coffin and is what's leading to China being the world's next probably sole superpower unless the EU steps up. Mm -hmm. And so, like, in a way, like, yeah, it was... a very effective way of establishing a global empire but like most global empires do it ended up shooting itself in the foot yeah because no oh, country can do it oh no so i was gonna say no country can keep that up for long it's like no dictatorship can survive for long neither can any empire because nobody likes your influence like america would be americans are always surprised at what other countries think of them yeah america would have just been like a meddling kind of like sideline guy probably um, but more importantly, the bombs not being dropped could have meant like a world where a strong union of like socialist anti-imperialist states kept fascism at bay. Right, where where the tried, something but... like something like developmentalism or third worldism is like allowed to exist as yeah. a, as something outside of the context of like a conflict, right? If it wasn't just that the issue is the third world and these developmentalist countries in South America are going to align themselves with the Soviet Union and that being the concern. If instead, if they decide to align with the Soviet Union, it doesn't matter because we have all their nuclear secrets, they have our nuclear secrets, there's no conflict there. Right, yeah, great point. Um, and if like if we hadn't dropped the bombs, America might not have had the cojones or more importantly, like the impunity to like go and intervene in dozens of countries, like throughout the 20th century, like a lot of Cold War power plays like may have still happened, they may have still been possible, but they probably would have been met with a lot more resistance um, from the other powers uh, because they don't have like this trump card. <laughs> no, and, and like, I think um, like on the on that point, like, yeah, sure, something like Chile might have still happened if the US was looking to expand its sphere of influence. But yeah, they wouldn't have the audacity. It wouldn't yeah. be, you know, they, maybe the Americans would see themselves as the guys that showed up late after getting owned in one battle. Maybe there would be sort of a more humble 
perception if they had just held on to the bomb? I don't think you're ever going to convince the American psyche to be humble. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I guess. I don't know. Maybe maybe there is just... Uh, our... doesn't matter completely juices you when you liquidate like 400,000 people and have the ability to liquidate the entire yeah. world times over yeah um i don't mean to say by i just wanted to um make it clear that the cold war itself was inevitable uh, two diametrically opposed ideologies were bound to you know clash at some point um the us is always going to extract wealth from the third world um, but it's more that by bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the U.S. escalated um, the Cold War to a potentially not even genocidal, we're past, far past genocide, omnicidal degree. It's what made the Cold War so deadly. And yet when you ask the average person about the Cold War, they'll say that, oh, the, the Cold War, there, there were no deaths. It was not a bloody war. It was just that one guy uh, shot down in the U two over, uh, you know, Russia or whatever. But he didn't I even die. That was the whole. Yeah, thing. he didn't. He refused, he refused to kill himself. I love. No, I think you're right. Like you know, you even look at what the West, as we mentioned before, did to the Soviet Union. Not even trying to intervene in the civil war, but tried the ways in which the West tried to isolate it and collapse it um, in the 1920s. Once it had sort of internally stabilized. Uh, like there was always going to be, right? Um, I think we did get a little bit too speculative there. There's always yeah. going to be a little bit of um, uh, at least hostility between a nation which purports to be, well, a capitalist nation, a nation which purports to be socialist, um, whether or not it actually was, different episode. Um, and so I think uh, you're right about that, but I think even that, even taking it into this sort of like wider context of, um, you know, uh, a great ideological struggle or an influence battle or whatever, it doesn't matter as much because at the end of the day, somebody did still press a button and kill 200,000 people. Yeah. And that's like, the scale of that is, is incredible. I mean, I live in the fourth largest city in North America. I probably haven't seen 200,000 people in my life. Yep. There's a website that you can go to if you Google it. I forget exactly what it's called, where you can like simulate um, a nuclear bombing like over your, like Google map. Yeah, nuke map. Yeah. Um, and it shows like the, the range of the bombs and like estimates how many people. And, and like, because I, I, I was waiting for someone to bring that up because that's something, you know, I found when I was like 13, just like looking for something to do on the internet. And thank God I found that. Um, but you know that it doesn't even register it's it's an impossibly large number you're like there's no way that this is what this would do and it only lets you do it once right so you can have a given area and it'll still be yeah 15 million and it's just so it's such a large number it doesn't register it's almost yeah. like this isn't a you can't picture destruction on that scale that's a real psychological phenomenon like and it's a it's a problem that historians grapple with constantly is how do we convey suffering on this scale because yeah to the human mind like it doesn't register that much of a difference between 1 million and 15 million like we just can't conceive of that degree of suffering but um at, this uh scientist named Robert Lifton coined this term called nuclear numbing 
to describe, especially in Americans, the kind of like cultural uh, psychosis around the atomic bombings, how we were aware of it, kind of repress this guilt and um, just kind of exist in this weird in between, like denial, like just large scale, like cultural denial of like the effects of those bombings. Um, and that's what enables like a lot, so much of this like normalization. Like I, I think constantly about how when I was a little kid, I could just press a button in a video game and send a tactical nuke to like racist gamer 69 you, or whatever. You must have been really good then because I was getting nowhere near nukes when I was playing in W2 when I was like He's globally ranked in Call of Duty, but that's besides the <laughs> point. It says a lot about me, unfortunately, but um, but it's, it's the, the deliberate obscuring of like, the, the reality of like the destruction, the human impact of the bombing. Cause like none of the political shit matters. This isn't like a leftist thing. This isn't like the strategic value, whatever. Like if you, if you understand something like this and you're not shocked by it um, or, or deeply disturbed or just, I don't know, like my life changed forever when I learned about this stuff. Like it's not, even a moral th it's a human thing like it's it's so much bigger than countries than geopolitics than ideology than than anything it's it's literally human existence and, and the future of our entire planet like climate change be damned um it's just damocles sword hanging well, over all of humanity hey one of the most effective solutions to global warming nuclear winter yeah. No, um, I think I there's that quote that is often misattributed to Stalin when nobody actually ever said it, which is like, one death is that's a tragedy, probably a million is a statistic. Um, and I think like that's true. Oh, my ahead. favorite kind of quote is the ones that were like, they sound so sick and no one ever really said it. It's like that Gramsci quote about like, now is the time of monsters. Oh, yeah. And he how, didn't like, say that? He didn't say it. No, it was like a weird translation or someone like really over-exaggerated like a, a uh, sentence okay. in one of his journals. That's so sad I know. that one rocks. That rocks. It's Anyways, so, good. so people talk, but like people, like it's a quote that people say Stalin said, he didn't say it. It doesn't matter, right? Um, and he, like, it's, it's true to a certain extent. Like, it's very easy to imagine, you know, I've had loved ones die, I've had friends die, and it's very easy to imagine a single death. It's easy to imagine a tragedy of multiple deaths. Um, and, but even, you know, once you start to get up to like a few dozen, if you think about some like the school shootings that happened in America, it just becomes so hard to comprehend. And then, you know, but, you know, and it, it's not that people are unempathetic, right? Like when this stuff is forced in your face, think about the profound psychological effect that the September 11th attacks had, right? And so I think that what we hope to do with the next section when we describe some of the things that people have to go through, um, I hope that we can at least shove it in some of your faces. Um, I know when I initially did my research, I was I lost sleep. It was very disturbing. Um, just in, I mean, I was more of the tech stuff into the actual effects of acute radiation syndrome. Um, but I think uh, if you're wrapped up healing on the Cold War stuff, I, I would like to talk about what these poor people had to go through on the ground. Yeah, let's get to it. This is where this, this is like really gets fun. serious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we might want to end the episode just on this because I don't think there's really much else to say. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll do this. We'll finish the episode. Okay.
Let's it's do it. A, it's just such a a horror. It, like it's almost hard to picture. Like mm-hmm. even even I've been reading the notes for it, and it's just it doesn't even seem like it's doing it justice. Yeah. Yeah. I um. So I wanna I wanna note quickly that like I have been to Japan on peace building tours. I am personal friends with a couple survivors of the atomic bombings, and like my mentor leads the trips, and and that this is like his crusade, and so like. I know I get a lot of flack for like being a shit poster or like, oh, she doesn't, she's not a serious like this is something I take so deadly seriously that like I am tearing up like even as I talk about this. Um so it's it's just a lot, but let's let's get Internal into it. Final content warning for mass suffering and yeah. very gruesome descriptions. Yeah, but it's really important that you try to listen to this if you can. Um so let's get to the decision to drop the bomb against all the resistance and all the internal evidence that the war could have gone differently. What, ha- what happened and why the fuck did we do it? Um, so like I mentioned earlier, the interim committee was established to come to a final decision on the bomb. Um, many people in the committee, including Manhattan Project scientists, including Undersecretary of the Navy, Ralph Bard, recommended that uh, the US not use the bombs given the clear evidence that Japan was already militarily defeated and willing and actively trying to surrender. Um, And they were all aware of the imminent threat that the Soviet invasion posed and how much more seriously Japan took that. Um, And it's also really important to note that there were a number of cities considered for the original bomb targets. Hiroshima was actually not considered at all. Nagasaki was not even in the list of potential targets at first, it was a last minute addition. Um, they considered bombing Kokura, which is a little bit north of Nagasaki, uh, Kyoto, which is the historical like cultural capital of Japan, um, Hiroshima and Niigata. Uh, few people realized that Japan had like very little to lose before the atomic bombings. Like before August 6th, Japan only had 11 cities left of over 100,000 people that had not been bombed by the US. Um, and we referenced the fire bombings a lot. We had more we wanted to say about that. But um, I think all you need to know is that the fire bombings were very bad, extremely deadly, completely ravaged um, the mainland. Um, so in that regard, yes, we're not saying they were any less. Ba- it's just a difference in like the larger implications. but there was basically nothing left to even hit. Like the, these cities, these four cities were reserved specifically for the purpose of potentially testing a bomb. Like they had to go out of their way to be like, hey, we're like 99% full on the loading bar, like leave this one so we can subject it to uh, like an ungodly uh, level of destruction. Um, and there was supposed to be also about a week between the bombings, right? I mentioned that Truman, warns Japan at Potsdam before that he's going to bomb. Uh, He warns them a couple times. Um, And there's a lot of, I don't like indulging in counter historicals all that much. Uh, We've done a little bit of that this episode, but I kind of do believe that if the full week had gone by, Japan probably would have surrendered. Um, But because of the weather, uh, inclement weather, the bomb was moved from Kokura 
uh, to Nagasaki and it was dropped ahead of like three days ahead of schedule. So it's three days later on August 9th. Um, and Nagasaki is also really significant as a target um, last minute selection that had been continually bombed throughout the war, uh, most recently on August 1st. Um, and Nagasaki was also a really important cultural center. It was the largest Christian stronghold in Southeast Asia at the time. And remember how I said that the Christian conservative establishment was also like vocally against the bombings, like the like at, right after they happened. Um, also, Nagasaki was one of the oldest and for a long time, the only open port in Japan. So it was like a center for international commerce, um, like a really like multicultural area, um, really vibrant. And it goes to show that the US cared more about showing off the bomb and testing it like mad scientist Leslie Grove style on live targets than protecting fellow Christians or protecting history, not doing war crimes, like anything they claim to stand for, like as a moral authority. I just thought that was important to point out because I didn't know that until I went there. Um, Hiroshima also was hardly a military target. It was a working class city with a large population of enslaved uh, Korean and Chinese people. There was one munitions factory on the outskirts of town, which wasn't even targeted. Um, the target at Hiroshima was a bridge in the center of town um, and the bomb missed by about a quarter mile and ironically and sadly enough, uh, the hypocenter, the actual hypocenter of the bomb was a hospital. I have been there. It's uh, actually a completely normal city block now. Uh, it's kind of remarkable in a way. Um, that could be another interesting discussion is how Japan the memory of the bombings was constructed in Japan, because even between there's museums in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there's a separate little Korean uh, World War II museum. Um, even between the cities, the, the story of the bomb is told very differently. Um, but that's where the world changed forever was people I remember when over I was a hospital. The, yeah, I remember when I was in the sixth grade, I, um, it was probably my first sign that something was off about the bombing. Um, I read some little story, like some little novella almost about uh, about the bombings. And yeah, like it mentioned that as the spotters were looking out of the plane to drop the bomb, they noticed some, you know, an idyllic river with a bridge over it and an army officer just riding his horse over the bridge next to the hospital. And I was like, wait a second. Like, and I, I, I sort of, it clicked to me that it doesn't matter where in the city the hospital was, it was going to be destroyed, but it's still like, the fact that they dropped it on a hospital is just, it's almost symbolic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Odagawa River is the river that flows through um, this, the center of Hiroshima. Um, and when the bomb exploded, it detonated in the sky. Like, I don't know if we made that clear um, from the discussion of the science. I'm pretty sure we did, but I didn't know that uh, it was activated by like the, the gravity or whatever in in the sky, so it detonates up there. It doesn't detonate on impact with the ground. So it detonated about a thousand feet in the air, and still, um, Hiroshima was selected because it was flat, open, not really like surrounded by mountains or hills. So they had just a completely clean slate to to test this out on. Um, and the river, when the bomb exploded in the sky, it literally rained fire. Um, people's skin were melting off of their bodies like literally like ice cream on a hot day there are pictures uh you should look at them but it 
I don't know if you should, but um, hundreds of people ran into the river, not realizing it was literally boiling from the heat. I don't know what the boiling temperature of water is, like 120 something degrees. I 100 believe. Celsius. Yeah, 100 um, Celsius. I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but hot. Yeah. So the water, just from this bomb exploding a thousand feet in the air, it caused all the water in in the area to boil. I will Ran add. Oh, oh go sorry. ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Um, so I didn't I didn't talk about this, but um, it was launched. The plane was at an exact altitude. The bomb had a timer. They detonate them in the air because it creates a greater opportunity for a shockwave. Um, so that rather than just creating a crater where some of the energy goes into the ground, uh, the energy is, is spread out over a wider distance. So they do that to make it, uh, more destructive. So if it really was just a show of force rather than an attempt to kill as many people as possible, they could have dropped it on the ground and a lot less people would have died and there would have been less radiation as well. I didn't know that. Yeah. Thank you. Cause I was so confused when I went to the hypocenter, like why the fuck? did is there not a crater here did they build over it and then they said no it like you see where the sun is you see where that bird is right there like that's and i was like oh shit. um let me see where i'm at here yeah so the river was boiling from the heat and hundreds of people ran into the river just trying to cool off because they were burning alive and were cooked alive by the boiling water um and the river was completely flooded with dead bodies um when i went to japan i got to place a lantern in the river uh, memorializing uh, the lives lost uh like friends of mine things like that um and it was probably the most moving experience i've ever had in my life like, i placed the very first lantern i was shocked when i went to japan and i also experienced this in russia where these are people that have no right to or, or not no right uh no no like reason to to like Americans or, or be kind to them, no obligation to to treat us with any sort of regard. Um, I wouldn't blame Jap the average Japanese or Russian person for just like spitting at us on the street like, but instead we were welcomed with open arms like I was allowed to participate in this like very, very sacred uh, tradition um to commemorate people that you know like i'm not personally responsible for but i represent the other side of it um so that was like that just changed my life forever for as much as we squabble on the internet and as much as it's easy to subscribe to doomer shit i will never fully resign myself to cynicism because of moments like that um and i think that hopefully amongst all this dark discussion that if some of you hope to, because the peace movement there, especially among the surviving Habakshua, is still so robust. Like they are super radical. They are out there all the time giving statements. And the survivors that I've met, they are all still so optimistic. Like it's incredible to me that they they really think that this the nuclear age, we can we can see the end of it in our lifetimes. And I think it's really something to behold. So over a hundred thousand people were killed at Hiroshima alone, uh, most immediately, many thousands after from complications of radiation sickness, and around 70,000 people were killed at Nagasaki. Um, do you want to do a little bit more about All right. radiation sickness? So this is, uh, it'll be short, but um, so there are two types of radiation sickness. Uh, there's the type that is when you're exposed to a low amount of radiation over a long time. Um, and then there's what is called acute radiation syndrome. 
which uh, has only ever been experienced on a mass scale three times. Uh, first at Hiroshima, then at Nagasaki, and then in Ukraine and Belarusia uh, after Chernobyl. So um, yeah, this is exposure to a high amount of radiation in a very short period of time. Um, and, and most of the world's cases of ARS have, have come from these bombings. Uh, but cases in smaller scale have been recorded as well. Um, they tend to be incidents in nuclear reactors. The first recorded incidents of it were actually in the, um, uh, the, the Manhattan Project. And in fact, the reason that Canadian involvement came to light was because uh, there was a nuclear accident and the Canadian nuclear physicist who had been secretly sent there um, sacrificed himself essentially to save the facility uh, and died of, of radiation sickness. Um, I want to note that it's also categorized further into accidental ARS and intentional ARS. Uh, I think that's a very important distinction to make that a breach in a nuclear reactor and what happened at Hiroshima are two very different things. Um, so basically all of the cells in the human body, except for in your brain, replace themselves over time. Um, radiation will break apart your DNA. Uh, and it creates errors when the DNA is copied in cell division. Um, so this is why radiation gives you cancer. Cancer is essentially just a cell that has a mutation, which means it doesn't perform its proper duties, but it still replicates and spreads. Um, so this is why radiation increases your risk of cancer, uh, but it also, it also can kill cells. But this means that the horrifying uh, result of ARS is that often your brain is largely untouched. So you will often, until your body starts shutting down and you go into a coma, you will be fully conscious and fully aware and feeling everything of what happens to you, at least until your nerves shut down. So um, the symptoms are very unpleasant. I'm just gonna give you a list. Uh, you'll get more or less depending on how much radiation you're exposed to, right? Like most acute radiation sickness uh, doesn't get as bad as some of the stuff I will describe. Um, most of it just ends up being a very high risk of cancer, uh, maybe some blistering and what looks like a big sunburn. Um, like that's what most of the people in Ukraine had. Um, but in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was much more severe. So things that can happen, your nervous system can shut down. So you lose control of, you know, your nerves, you feel things that aren't there. You don't feel things that are, um, you can also lose control of your muscles eventually. Uh, which either means that you won't be able to move them or they'll start to move without you and you'll have to be restrained. You always get the normal battery of, you know, headaches, nausea, diarrhea, fever, etc., flu symptoms. Um, your veins will split open and you'll start to bleed through your skin. Um, your hair falls out. Uh, sometimes if you're lucky, it grows back. Otherwise it won't. Um, that's why chemotherapy patients also often have that happen. Um, and although it wasn't recorded at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it's hard to record because uh, of heat doing the same thing. Um, and it's, it was noted in Chernobyl and in another case with a worker in a Japanese nuclear reactor, um, your skin can start to literally melt off your body. Like it will just fall right off your bones. Um, another possibility is that rather than falling off, it will just die while it's still on your body. You'll get full body necrosis and your skin will just start uh, to rot without you. And it's important, like it's survivable if it doesn't get that bad, um, but it's torture. 
and you know not like the people who died by jumping into that boiling lake as horrifying as it seems were some of the luckiest people in Hiroshima uh and and so like it's just it's it's hard to understate how how terrifying it's probably the worst way to die um how terrifying and painful uh it is to die of acute radiation sickness especially when a lot of these people are children yeah i i don't really know what else to say on that I mean, I think the only thing you can say is that all this was known before, you know, before they went out to drop the bomb. They knew. That yeah, it literally was- happened. It, it happened to Louis Slotin. Like, it happened to people in the labs. Like, they knew that it, like, if it, if, if it had never been recorded, if there were never any nuclear accidents, then you can say, okay, like, whatever. It was just theory or they had no idea what was going to happen. But it happened to some of them before they dropped the bomb. That's a really good point. They didn't even think about that. It was, it, they, they knew what they were doing. This is that's the purpose of us, you know, running through these lists of symptoms and you know recreating what happened. Is this wasn't an accident? It wasn't a policy misstep. They knew, and everyone in that chain of command knew what was going to happen up until that bomb detonated over Hiroshima. And you know, it may just seem that we're you know, harping on the same point for a while, but it is probably the purpose of this episode to make people realize that this wasn't an oopsie. It wasn't anything other than, you know, our theory of sure. And, you know, you can say it was a test. You can say it was a show of force, but it was a paradigm shift and, but it was intentional. And it's everyone like, involved knew what was going to happen. Yeah, it's like in schools, right? They show us, and obviously the scale was much lower, but they show us pictures of the concentration camps and the Holocaust. They show us pictures of, you know, the piles of limbs in the Rwandan genocide. Like it is very important to be forced to reconcile with crimes that uh, we commit. And that's why I think, for example, to bring it into a more modern context, I think it's great that the Canadian government is now digging up all the mass graves at the residential schools, right? Like people have to be taken, like they have to take into account the evils of the past because if denuclearization is the goal, and I think it should be a goal, um, the best way to do it is to just understand like the end of the world is this big abstract idea, but the pure abject misery and human suffering that was caused by just, just two of these devices and two of the smallest ones least powerful ones ever created is it's untold it's it's like it like the scale of it and then you you think that these bombs that that we have now are thousands of times the size and there are many more like it's not just the end of the world it's like biblical levels of suffering yeah and i'm not being a doomsday preacher when i say this i'm not trying to scare anyone but this is something that we all are at risk of experiencing. It doesn't matter what ideology you subscribe to or where you live or who you vote for. This is a threat that affects all of us. And it's something that everyone should take seriously on a human level um, because it affected and changed the lives of almost a million people, right? Because you have on the high end 
210,000 people who died as a direct result of the bombings. And then the Japanese government recognized about 700,000 people, more people as uh, Hibakshua. Um, additionally, there were people who fled the bombing at Hiroshima to Nagasaki and were bombed again. Um, and they Only are- Only one man ever survived that. Like, there's there one are, guy who survived both, but there were plenty of people who died in Nagasaki who survived Hiroshima. There were, yeah. Um, there were more than there was more than just one survivor of of both the bombings because I've met one of them unless that was literally the guy you were talking about. I'm pretty sure I read in like the Guinness Book of World Records or something or Ripley's or something when I was young that there was only ever one. I'll have to go back to that, but yeah, if so, way, I met way. him and that's amazing. But yeah. they are called Niju Hubakshua or double bomb survivors, um, who yeah fled Hiroshima only to see Armageddon a second time in the span of three days. Um, and this man, so there are two major uh, stories that come out um, in the aftermath of the atomic bombings. Uh, one is famously uh, Hiroshima by John Hersey, which if you wanna get more of an account of an, like an on the ground, person to person look at what these bombings did to uh, people, read that book, it's required reading. It's like barely, it's not even a hundred pages, I don't think, um, and it's, some of the most hard-hitting journalism, just in general, of all time. Um, and then this other man, this Australian journalist named Wilford Burchett, um, is quoted as saying, he he broke the other big stories, like the international community, because American journalists weren't reporting on this, really. Um, we had, we sent something over called, well, you all know that uh, America presided over the government of Japan after, um, the end of World War II for about 10 years, we uh, installed a new constitution there um, and everything. And we established something called the ABCC, the Atomic Bomb Casualty Co Coalition, um, which was supposed to measure the effects of the atomic bombings, right? Because this was above all a science experiment and we wanted to see how these things affected people. And my friend, Koko Tanamoto, who if you've read Hersey's book, is the daughter of Reverend Tanamoto, I met her and she was five years old when the bombs dropped. It was like her very first memory. Um, she was subjected to, for a decade, like as a young girl going through puberty, um, like forced experimentation. Um, every month she would have to go into an auditorium where all the lights were shining down on her with a bunch of strange older white male scientists and strip naked be observed, sometimes a lot of times subjected to more intrusive tests. And this was just par for the course for any bomb survivor. This happened to everyone and they really didn't have any say in the matter. So this trauma, not only like physically enduring in their bodies as radiation poisoning, but continued to be, um, continued to be tortured by the US and like for, for, you know, supposedly like scientific purposes, but uh, sorry, what I meant to say was Wilford Burchett is quoted as saying, Hiroshima does not look like a bombed city. It looks as if a monster steamroller had passed over it and squashed it out of existence. Um, this power that we're dealing with is an affront to God. Like it's just not, it's like, I'm not even religious and it makes me feel that way. Um, there's just no law, it defies logic, it defies, reasoning it it defies like everything that we are supposed to 
hold dear as humans. Um, and I, I, I conceptualize it sometimes as like the apotheosis of like imperialism, really. Um, but <laughs> that's a discussion for another time. Uh, but I can't stress enough that this is not an ideological squabble. This is not some sort of gotcha. This is not me being smug and saying, hey, you know, maybe we need to give Imperial Japan a pass. This is just a raw human issue that I don't know. I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to end with this. Um, in the Hiroshima, excuse me, in the Nagasaki Bomb Museum, the very last thing you do is you walk through a long, dark corridor of pictures of people in black and white, their faces, they're lit up. There's no names or anything. There's no information. You just see people. They look kind of forlorn. They look kind of lost, confused. You're like, hmm. You kind of figure that they're survivors of the bombings or victims of the bombings. And then you're led into this large open hall. And there is nothing in the hall except for two benches and some skylights. And you are forced to sit across from whoever your, you know, your, your tour party is. After just seeing all these faces of the victims, you're forced to sit and look in complete silence and imagine the people sitting across from you as if they were the people you saw in the photographs, the victims, because that is the reality of all this. That is what's at stake here. And I hope you can kind of take that away from everything we've discussed today. And there's so much to discuss with all of this from every angle, political, presidential, ideological. There's so much wrapped up in this, but if you take anything away from this, I want it to be that anecdote. Um, and I really appreciate everyone who's listening for, for sticking with this. This is a tough thing to come to grips with. I went fully insane when I really got hip to this and started diving deeper into it. I was, I cried myself to sleep for months. I was convinced that this, it was the end of days. I was going to see my friends in those pictures someday or never see them again at all. Um, and it's, it's hard. It's, we don't want to think about this. Why would anyone, but we have a moral duty to do so. Um, and I hope that in whatever ways you can, you can advocate uh, for survivors of the bombings. You can consider incorporating nuclear abolition into your politics because it's really a natural fit in a lot of ways. I think you can kind of start to see that like the bomb is intersectional in its destruction. It is kind of like the ultimate form of all the systems of oppression that are produced and reproduced like under capitalism. Um, so I just, yeah, a very serious episode, very serious stuff going on here. And thank you, Malcolm and Declan both for like really like giving it your all and being so thoughtful about this. Um, it's really, uh, as you mentioned, it's really important. It's, uh, I was going to say, you know, a, a pleasure doing this, but it's not like it, it makes me feel good to get the message out certainly, but I, I'm more maybe a, an honor or a privilege. Um, I was going to say I am religious, I'm a Christian, and it is like objectively an affront to God. I think um, Rachel Carson, the author of Silent Spring, um, wrote about this, that like the fundamental change um, 
that the sort of industrial, I'm not to go all Ted Kaczynski here, but the, the fundamental change that the industrial revolution has brought about is this ability for humanity to wreak untold destruction on each other and on the natural world. And look, if we're looking at this from a, yeah, a Christian or a Muslim or a Jewish perspective, God has destroyed cities. God is the only one capable of uh, like unleashing this mass power and people who try and emulate God's power are punished, right? Like the, this idea of that a single person be it the president of the United States, the president of Russia, the president of China, the chairman of North Korea, like whatever. The idea that this a single person has the ability and has been granted the moral authority to wipe the entire planet away, to wipe even a single city away. I mean, we recognize that murder is unjustified that killing one person is unjustified. And like the idea that, that you can kill hundreds of thousands or you can order somebody to kill hundreds of thousands or millions. It is like, you're right. It is an affront to God. And so I think there's my appeal uh, as a religious person to other religious people. I don't really have anything else to say if Declan, you've got anything else and then we'll wrap up here, but. Yeah, I mean, you guys pretty much said it all. I mean, Haley, yeah, it's been an honor, I would say, to have you on the program and have you talk about, you know, not just the history, but the sort of implications, yeah, like you said, on a, a human basis, not even an ideological basis. Um, I mean, it's, like I said earlier, it's it's hard to conceptualize even what the smallest of these um of these weapons has caused it's horrifying to think that you know it's advanced to the point where we can wipe ourselves out six or seven times over and so yeah i mean i i don't know what to say i don't know what note to end the episode on i mean it's i'll oh go ahead oh it's it's hard to for, for all that's been said and for all that the bombs kind of represent, like what we're going up against, I just want to stress that this is something that can be dismantled, that can be changed. I mean, you can take the lesson of the Soviets in World War II going up against the Nazis. You can take the lesson of the Hibakshua, the survivors. This is something that is being chipped away at and it is crumbling like as we speak this like nuclear world order this hegemony there is more momentum than ever behind nuclear abolition or at least the abolition of nuclear weapons and this is something that if you part choose to participate in it, it will be worthwhile i don't want anyone to feel like they're hopeless or powerless against this i just want you to understand the stakes um and the exigency of this issue but it is far from a hopeless cause um, and so I hope you'll consider just the best thing you can do and also the easiest thing is to just talk about this with people because they don't know they're ignorant of it probably by design and it's tough to penetrate that propaganda I've gotten so much flack from you know the history channel boomers and and those kinds of people that that think they know better but it's possible to get through to them I 
I don't think I was ever really one of those people, but I just didn't understand and it, it was hard, but it's something that we should do. And it's something that really does have a profound impact. So stay vigilant um, and just, I don't know, remember your humanity because this is bigger than, this is all of us. Um, so, so thank you. Yeah, well, thank you very, very much. Uh, oh, we'll be sure to have you on again if you want for maybe something a bit cheerier. I'd love uh, to. Thank All right. Well, that's great. Well, I'll, I'll also leave the viewers, listeners with this promise. Next episode you're here will be a lot cheerier. We're going to talk about everyone's favorite topic, which is dunking on the French. Um, so, I mean, yeah, this was a serious episode. It's a serious topic. Um, and it's really important that um, at the very least, yeah, you talk to people about denuclearization. Um, but yeah, Haley, it's been an absolute honor having you on. Uh, thank, thank you so, you so much. Really appreciate uh, y'all. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to end the recording here. Uh, so until next time, um, I've been Malcolm. I've been Declan. And this has been your Juno. Bye.